Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Hello and welcome to the show. In last week's show, I played for you part one of A Separate Reality by my mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. In tonight's show, I bring you part two. If you missed uh, part one, just go into the Jackalope uh, archives and you can uh, pick it up there. And here is part two of A Separate Reality. Don Juan was not at his house when I arrived there at midday on November 8, 1968. I had no idea where to look for him, so I sat and waited. For some unknown reason, I knew he would soon be home. A short while later, Don Juan walked into his house. He nodded at me. We exchanged greetings. He seemed to be tired and lay down on his mat. He yawned a couple of times. The idea of seeing had become an obsession with me, and I had made up my mind to use his hallucinogenic smoking mixture again. It had been a terribly difficult decision to make, so I still wanted to argue the point a bit further. I want to learn to see, Don Juan, I said bluntly, but I really don't want to take anything. I don't want to smoke your mixture. Do you think there is any chance I could learn to see without it? He sat up, stared at me for a moment, and lay down again. No, he said. You'll have to use the smoke. Seeing is not so simple, and only the smoke can give you the speed you need to catch a glimpse of that fleeting world. Otherwise, you will only look. The next day, November 9th, Don Juan let me eat only a morsel of food and told me to rest. I lay around all morning, but I could not relax. I had no idea what Don Juan had in mind, but worst of all, I was not certain what I had in mind myself. You haven't prepared your mixture for three years, he said suddenly. You'll have to smoke my mixture, so let's say that I have collected it for you. You'll need only a bit of it. I will fill the pipe's bowl once. You will smoke all of it and then rest. Then the keeper of the other world will come. You will do nothing but observe it. Observe how it moves. Observe everything it does. Your life may depend on how well you watch. Don Juan flatly refused to involve himself in conversation, but I was too nervous to stop talking, and I insisted desperately that he tell me about this guardian. You'll see it, he said casually. It guards the other world. With that, Don Juan went inside the house. I followed him into his room. Wait, wait, Don Juan, what are you going to do? He did not answer. He took his pipe out of a bundle and sat down on a straw mat in the center of the room, looking at me inquisitively. He seemed to be waiting for my consent. You're a fool, he said softly. You're not afraid. You just say you're afraid. He shook his head slowly from side to side. Then he took the little bag with the smoking mixture and filled the pipe bowl. I am afraid, Don Juan. I'm really afraid. No, it's not fear. I paced up and down the room in front of Don Juan, who was still sitting on his mat, holding his pipe and looking at me inquisitively. And upon considering the matter, I arrived at the conclusion that what I felt, instead of my usual fear, was a profound sense of displeasure, a discomfort at the mere thought of the confusion created by the intake of hallucinogenic plants. Don Juan stared at me for an instant. Then he looked past me, squinting as if he were struggling to detect something in the distance. 
I kept walking back and forth in front of him until he forcefully told me to sit down and relax. We sat quietly for a few minutes. You don't want to lose your clarity, do you? He said abruptly. That's very right, Don Juan, I said. He laughed with apparent delight. Clarity, the second enemy of a man of knowledge, has loomed upon you. You're not afraid, he said reassuringly, but now you hate to lose your clarity. And since you're a fool, you call that fear. He chuckled. Get me some charcoals, he ordered. His tone was kind and reassuring. I got up automatically and went to the back of the house and gathered some small pieces of burning charcoal from the fire, put them on top of a small stone slab and returned to the room. Come out here to the porch, Don Juan called loudly from outside. He placed a straw mat on the spot where I usually sit. I put the charcoals next to him and he blew on them to activate the fire. I was about to sit down, but he stopped me and told me to sit on the right edge of the mat. He then put a piece of charcoal in the pipe and handed it to me. I took it. I was amazed at the silent forcefulness with which Don Juan had steered me. I could not think of anything to say. I had no more arguments. I was convinced that I was not afraid, but only unwilling to lose my clarity. Puff, puff, he ordered me gently. Just one bowl this time. I sucked on the pipe and heard the chirping of the mixture catching on fire. I felt an instantaneous coat of ice inside my mouth and my nose. I took another puff and the coating extended to my chest. When I had taken the last puff, I felt that the entire inside of my body was coated with a peculiar sensation of cold warmth. Don Juan took the pipe away from me and tapped the bowl on his palm to loosen the residue. Then, as he always does, he wet his finger with saliva and rubbed it inside the bowl. My body was numb, but I could move. I changed positions to sit more comfortably. What's going to happen, I asked. I had some difficulty vocalizing. Don Juan very carefully put his pipe inside its sheath and rolled it up in a long piece of cloth. Then he sat up straight, facing me. I felt dizzy. My eyes were closing involuntarily. Don Juan shook me vigorously and ordered me to stay awake. He said I knew very well that if I fell asleep I would die. That jolted me. It occurred to me that Don Juan was probably just saying that to keep me awake. But on the other hand, it also occurred to me that he might be right. I opened my eyes as wide as I could and that made Don Juan laugh. He said that I had to wait for a while and keep my eyes open all the time, and that at a given moment I would be able to see the guardian of the other world. I felt a very annoying heat all over my body. I tried to change position, but I could not move anymore. I wanted to talk to Don Juan. The words seemed to be so deep inside of me that I could not bring them out. Then I tumbled on my left side and found myself looking at Don Juan from the floor. He leaned over and ordered me in a whisper not to look at him, but to stare fixedly at a point on my mat which was directly in front of my eyes. He said that I had to look with one eye, my left eye, and that sooner or later I would see the guardian. I fixed my stare on the spot he had pointed to, but I did not see anything. At a certain moment, however, I noticed a gnat flying in front of my eyes. It landed on the mat. I followed its movements. It came very close to me, so close that my visual perception blurred. And then, all of a sudden, I felt as if I had stood up. It was a very puzzling sensation that deserved some pondering, but there was no time for that. I had the total sensation that I was looking straight onward from my usual eye level, and what I saw shook up the last fiber of my being. There is no other way to describe the emotional jolt I experienced. Right there, facing me a short distance away, was a gigantic, monstrous animal, a truly monstrous thing, 
Never in the wildest fantasies of fiction had I encountered anything like it. I looked at it in complete, utmost bewilderment. The first thing I really noticed was its size. I thought for some reason that it must be close to a hundred feet tall. It seemed to be standing erect, although I could not figure out how it stood. Next I noticed that it had wings, two short, wide wings. At that point I became aware that I insisted on examining the animal as if it were an ordinary sight. That is, I looked at it. However, I could not really look at it in the way I was accustomed to looking. I realized that I was rather noticing things about it, as if the picture were becoming more clear as parts were added. Its body was covered with tufts of black hair. It had a long muzzle and was drooling. Its eyes were bulgy and round, like two enormous white balls. Then it began to beat its wings. It was not the flapping motion of a bird's wings, but a kind of flickering, vibratory tremor. It gained speed and began circling in front of me. It was not flying, but rather skidding with astonishing speed and agility just a few inches above the ground. For a moment I found myself engrossed in watching it move. I thought that its movements were ugly, and yet its speed and easiness were superb. It circled twice in front of me, vibrating its wings, and whatever was drooling out of its mouth flew in all directions. Then it turned around and skidded away at an incredible speed until it disappeared in the distance. I stared fixedly in the direction it had gone because there was nothing else I could do. I had a most peculiar sensation of being incapable of organizing my thoughts coherently. I could not move away. It was as if I were glued to the spot. Then I saw something like a cloud in the distance. An instant later the gigantic beast was circling again at full speed in front of me. Its wings cut closer and closer to my eyes until they hit me. I felt that its wings had actually hit whatever part of me was there. I yelled with all my might in the midst of one of the most excruciating pains I have ever had. The next thing I knew I was seated on my mat and Don Juan was rubbing my forehead. He rubbed my arms and legs with leaves, then he took me to an irrigation ditch behind his house, took off my clothes and submerged me completely, and pulled me out and submerged me over and over again. As I lay on the shallow bottom of the irrigation ditch, Don Juan pulled up my left foot from time to time and tapped the sole gently. After a while, I felt a ticklishness. He noticed it and said that I was all right. I put on my clothes and we returned to his house. I sat down again on my straw mat and tried to talk, but I felt I could not concentrate on what I wanted to say, although my thoughts were very clear. I was amazed to realize how much concentration was necessary to talk. I also noticed that in order to say something, I had to stop looking at things. I had the impression that I was entangled at a very deep level, and when I wanted to talk I had to surface like a diver. I had to ascend as if pulled by my words. Twice I went as far as clearing my throat in a fashion which was perfectly ordinary. I could have said then whatever I wanted to, but I did not. I preferred to remain at the strange level of silence where I could just look. I had the feeling that I was beginning to tap what Don Juan had called seeing, and that made me very happy. Afterwards, Don Juan gave me some soup and tortillas and ordered me to eat. I was able to eat without any trouble and without losing what I thought to be my power of seeing. I focused my gaze on everything around me. I was convinced I could see everything, and yet the world looked the same to the best of my assessment. I struggled to see until it was quite dark. I finally got tired and lay down and went to sleep. I woke up when Don Juan covered me with a blanket. I had a headache and was sick to my stomach. After a while, I felt better and slept soundly until the next day. In the morning, I was myself again. I asked Don Juan eagerly, what happened to me? Don Juan laughed coyly. You went to look for the keeper, and of course you found it, he said. November 12, 1968. 
This morning, Don Juan and I went to the nearby hills to collect plants. We walked about six miles on extremely rough terrain. I became very tired. We sat down to rest at my initiative, and he began a conversation, saying that he was pleased with my progress. Later on, we talked again about the guardian of the other world. If I believe that whatever I have experienced is actually real, I said, then the guardian is a gigantic creature that can cause unbelievable physical pain. And if I believe that one can actually travel enormous distances by an act of will, then it's logical to conclude that I could also will the monster to disappear. Is that correct? Not exactly, he said. You cannot will the guardian to disappear. Your will can stop it from harming you, though. Of course, if you ever accomplish that, the road is open to you. You can actually go by the guardian, and there's nothing that it can do, not even whirl around madly. How can I accomplish that? You already know how. All you need now is practice. I told him that we were having a misunderstanding that stemmed from our differences in perceiving the world. You really know how to talk and say nothing, don't you? He said, laughing. I've told you, you have to have an unbending intent in order to become a man of knowledge. But you seem to have an unbending intent to confuse yourself with riddles. You insist on explaining everything as if the whole world were composed of things that can be explained. Now you are confronted with the Guardian and with the problem of moving by using your will. Has it ever occurred to you that only a few things in this world can be explained your way? When I say that the Guardian is really blocking your passing and could actually knock the devil out of you, I know what I mean. When I say that one can move by one's will, I also know what I mean. Don Juan asked me abruptly if I was planning to leave for home during the weekend. I said I intended to leave Monday morning. We were sitting under his ramada around midday on Saturday, January 18, 1969, taking a rest after a long walk in the nearby hills. Don Juan got up and went into the house. A few moments later, he called me inside. He was sitting in the middle of his room and had placed my straw mat in front of his. He motioned me to sit down, and without saying a word, he unwrapped his pipe, took it out of its sheath, filled its bowl with his smoking mixture, and lit it. He had even brought into his room a clay tray filled with small charcoals. He did not ask me whether I was willing to smoke. He just handed me the pipe and told me to puff. I did not hesitate. Don Juan had apparently assessed my mood correctly. My overwhelming curiosity about the Guardian must have been obvious to him. I did not need any coaxing and eagerly smoked the entire bowl. Don Juan lay down on his side facing me. I felt very content. It's nice, I said. Don Juan got up hurriedly. Don't you dare start with this crap, he said forcefully. Don't talk. You'll waste every bit of energy talking and then the Guardian will mash you down like you would smash a gnat. He must have thought that his simile was funny because he began to laugh, but he stopped suddenly. Don't talk. Please, don't talk, he said with a serious look on his face. I wasn't about to say anything, I said, and I really did not want to say that. Don Juan got up. I saw him walking away toward the back of his house. A moment later, I noticed that a gnat had landed on my mat, and that filled me with a kind of anxiety I had never experienced before. It was a mixture of elation, anguish, and fear. I was totally aware that something transcendental was about to unfold in front of me, a gnat who guarded the other world. It was a ludicrous thought. I felt like laughing out loud. But then I realized that my elation was distracting me, and I was going to miss a transition period I wanted to clarify. In my previous attempt to see the Guardian, I had looked at the gnat first with my left eye, and then I felt that I had stood up and looked at it with both eyes, but I was not aware how that transition had occurred. 
I saw the gnat whirling around on the mat in front of my face and realized that I was looking at it with both eyes. It came very close. At a given moment, I could not see it with both eyes any longer and shifted the view to my left eye, which was level with the ground. The instant I changed focus, I also felt that I had straightened my body to a fully vertical position and I was looking at an unbelievably enormous animal. It was brilliantly black. Its front was covered with long, black, insidious hair which looked like spikes coming through the cracks of some slick, shiny scales. The hair was actually arranged in tufts. Its body was massive, thick and round. Its wings were wide and short in comparison to the length of its body. It had two white, bulging eyes and a long muzzle. This time it looked more like an alligator. It seemed to have long ears or perhaps horns, and it was drooling. I strained myself to fix my gaze on it, and then became fully aware that I could not look at it in the same way I ordinarily look at things. I had a strange thought. Looking at the guardian's body, I felt that every single part of it was independently alive, as the eyes of men are alive. I realized then for the first time in my life that the eyes were the only part of a man that could show to me whether or not he was alive. The guardian, on the other hand, had a million eyes. I thought this was a remarkable finding. Before this experience, I had speculated on the similes that could describe the distortions that rendered a gnat as a gigantic beast, and I had thought that a good simile was as if looking at an insect through the magnifying lens of a microscope. But that was not so. Apparently, viewing the guardian was much more complex than looking at a magnified insect. The guardian began to whirl in front of me. At one moment it stopped and I felt it was looking at me. I noticed then that it made no sound. The dance of the guardian was silent. The awesomeness was in its appearance, its bulging eyes, its horrendous mouth, its drooling, its insidious hair, and above all, its incredible size. I watched very closely the way it moved its wings, how it made them vibrate without sound. I watched how it skidded over the ground like a monumental ice skater. Looking at that nightmarish creature in front of me, I actually felt elated. I really believed I had discovered the secret of overpowering it. I thought the Guardian was only a moving picture on a silent screen. It could not harm me. It only looked terrifying. The Guardian was standing still, facing me. Suddenly it fluttered its wings and turned around. Its back looked like brilliantly colored armor. Its shine was dazzling, but the hue was nauseating. It was my unfavorable color. The Guardian remained with its back turned to me for a while, and then, fluttering its wings, again skidded out of sight. I was confronted with a very strange dilemma. I honestly believed that I had overpowered it by realizing that it presented only a picture of wrath. My belief was perhaps due to Don Juan's insistence that I knew more than I was willing to admit. At any rate, I felt I had overcome the Guardian and the path was free, yet I did not know how to proceed. Don Juan had not told me what to do in such a case. I tried to turn and look behind me, but I was unable to move. However, I could see very well over the major part of a 180-degree range in front of my eyes, and what I saw was a cloudy, pale yellow horizon. It seemed gaseous, a sort of lemon hue uniformly covered all I could see. It seemed that I was on a plateau filled with vapors of sulfur. Suddenly the guardian appeared again at a point on the horizon. It made a wide circle before stopping in front of me. Its mouth was wide open like a huge cavern. It had no teeth. It vibrated its wings for an instant, and then it charged at me. It actually charged at me like a bull, and with its gigantic wings it swung at my eyes. I screamed with pain, and then I flew up, or rather I felt I had ejected myself up and went soaring beyond the Guardian, beyond the yellowish plateau, into another world, the world of men, and I found myself standing in the middle of Don Juan's room.
January 19, 1969. I really thought I had overpowered the Guardian, I said to Don Juan. You must be kidding, he said. You must not try to see the Guardian ever again. It's not your temperament to cross that plane. Yet I was convinced that you could go through it. But let's not talk about it anymore. This was only one of a variety of roads. For three months, Don Juan systematically avoided talking about the Guardian. I paid him four visits during these months. He involved me in running errands for him every time, and when I had performed the errands, he simply told me to go home. On April 24, 1969, the fourth time I was at his house, I finally confronted him after we had eaten dinner and were sitting next to his earthen stove. How did I fail, Don Juan? You think about everything. You thought about the Guardian, and thus you couldn't overcome it. First, you must live like a warrior. I think you understand that very well. I wanted to interject something in my defense, but he gestured with his hand to be quiet. Your life is fairly tight. You faithfully carried out everything I've told you to do, everything that my benefactor taught me in the first stage of learning I have passed on to you. The rule is right. The steps cannot be changed. You've done everything one has to do, and yet you don't see. But to those who see, like Gennaro, you appear as though you see. I rely on that, and I'm fooled. You always turn around and behave like an idiot who doesn't see, which of course is right for you. Don Juan's words distressed me profoundly. I don't know why, but I was close to tears. I began to talk about my childhood, and a wave of self-pity enveloped me. Don Juan stared at me for a brief moment and then moved his eyes away. It was a penetrating glance. Then he steered the conversation to my childhood. Why was your childhood sad, he asked with a serious expression. I told him that my childhood had not really been sad, but perhaps a bit difficult. Everybody feels that way, he said, looking at me again. I too was very unhappy and afraid when I was a child. To be an Indian is hard, very hard. But the memory of that time no longer has meaning for me beyond that it was hard. I had ceased to think about the hardship of my life even before I had learned to see. I was a skinny child, he went on, and I was always afraid. So was I, I said. What I remember the most is the terror and sadness that fell upon me when the Mexican soldiers killed my mother, he said softly, as if the memory was still painful. Perhaps it was better that her life was over then. I wanted to be killed with her because I was a child. But the soldiers picked me up and beat me. When I grabbed onto my mother's body, they hit my fingers with a horsewhip and broke them. I didn't feel any pain, but I couldn't grasp any more, and then they dragged me away. He stopped talking. His eyes were still closed, and I could detect a very slight tremor in his lips. A profound sadness began to overtake me. Images of my own childhood started to flood my mind. That was the time of the great Yaqui Wars. The Mexican soldiers came upon us unexpectedly while my mother was cooking some food. She was a helpless woman. They killed her for no reason at all. It doesn't make any difference that she died that way. Not really. And yet for me it does. I cannot tell myself why, though. It just does. I thought they had killed my father, too, but they hadn't. He was wounded. Later on they put us in a train like cattle and closed the door. For days they kept us there in the dark like animals. They kept us alive with bits of food they threw into the wagon from time to time. My father died of his wounds in that wagon. He became delirious with pain and fever and went on telling me that I had to survive. 
He kept on telling me that until the very last moment of his life. The people took care of me. They gave me food. An old woman curer fixed the broken bones of my hand. And as you can see, I live. Life has been neither good nor bad to me. Life has been hard. Life is hard. And for a child, it is sometimes harder itself. In an instant, my feelings of empathy for Don Juan gave way to a sensation of disgust with myself. I had actually taken notes, as if Don Juan's life were merely a clinical case. I was on the verge of ripping up my notes when Don Juan poked my calf with his toe to attract my attention. He said he was seeing a light of violence around me and wondered whether I was going to start beating him. His laughter was a delightful break. He said that I was given to outbursts of violent behavior, but that I was not really mean, and that most of the time the violence was against myself. You're right, Don Juan, I said. Of course, he said, laughing. I promised my father that I would live to destroy his assassins. I carried that promise with me for years. Now the promise has changed. I'm no longer interested in destroying anybody. Today, I feel sad. Not because my mother and father died the way they did. I feel sad because they were Indians. They lived like Indians and died like Indians and never knew that they were before anything else. Men. I went back to visit Don Juan on May 30th, 1969 and bluntly told him that I wanted to take another crack at seeing. He shook his head negatively and laughed and I felt compelled to protest. He told me I had to be patient and the time was not right but I doggedly insisted I was ready. He did not seem annoyed with my nagging requests. He tried, nevertheless, to change the subject. I did not let go and asked him to advise me what to do in order to overcome my impatience. You must act like a warrior, he said. How? One learns to act like a warrior by acting, not by talking. You must completely forget the Guardian before you can again embark on the quest of seeing, he said. How can anyone forget the Guardian? A warrior has to use his will and his patience to forget. In fact, a warrior has only his will and his patience, and with them he builds anything he wants. But I'm not a warrior. You have started learning the ways of sorcerers. You have no more time for retreats or for regrets. You only have time to live like a warrior and work for patience and will, whether you like it or not. Well, how does a warrior work for them? Don Juan thought for a long time before answering. I think there's no way of talking about it, he finally said, especially about will. Will is something very special. It happens mysteriously. There's no real way of telling how one uses it, except that the results of using the will are astounding. Perhaps the first thing that one should do is to know that one can develop the will. A warrior knows that and proceeds to wait for it. Your mistake is not to know that you are waiting for your will. My benefactor told me that a warrior knows that he is waiting and knows what he is waiting for. In your case, you know that you're waiting. You've been here with me for years, yet you don't know what you are waiting for. It is very difficult, if not impossible, for the average man to know what he is waiting for. A warrior, however, has no problems. He knows that he is waiting for his will. Is will the control we may have over ourselves? I asked. You may say that it is a kind of control. Do you think I can exercise my will, for instance, by denying myself certain things? Such as asking questions, he interjected. He said it in such a mischievous tone that I had to stop writing to look at him. We both laughed. No, he said. 
Denying yourself is an indulgence, and I don't recommend anything of the kind. That is the reason why I let you ask all the questions you want. If I told you to stop asking questions, you might warp your will trying to do that. The indulgence of denying is by far the worst. It forces us to believe that we are doing great things, when in effect we are only fixed within ourselves. I've told you that when you talk, you only get confused, he said and laughed. But at least now you know you are waiting for your will. You still don't know what it is or how it could happen to you. So watch carefully everything you do. The very thing that could help you develop your will is amidst all the little things you do. My benefactor said that when a man embarks on the paths of sorcery, he becomes aware in a gradual manner that ordinary life has been forever left behind, that knowledge is indeed a frightening affair, that the means of the ordinary world are no longer a buffer for him, and that he must adopt a new way of life if he is going to survive. The first thing he ought to do at that point is to want to become a warrior, a very important step and decision. The frightening nature of knowledge leaves one no alternative but to become a warrior. By the time knowledge becomes a frightening affair, the man also realizes that death is the irreplaceable partner that sits next to him on the mat. Every bit of knowledge that becomes power has death as its central force. Death lends the ultimate touch, and whatever is touched by death indeed becomes power. A man who follows the paths of sorcery is confronted with imminent annihilation every turn of the way, and unavoidably he becomes keenly aware of his death. Without the awareness of death, he would be only an ordinary man involved in ordinary acts. He would lack the necessary potency, the necessary concentration that transforms one's ordinary time on earth into magical power. Thus, to be a warrior, a man has to be, first of all, and rightfully so, keenly aware of his own death. But to be concerned with death would force any one of us to focus on the self, and that would be debilitating. So the next thing one needs to be a warrior is detachment. The idea of imminent death, instead of becoming an obsession, becomes an indifference. The sole idea of being detached from everything I know gives me the chills, I said. You must be joking. The thing which should give you the chills is not to have anything to look forward to, but a lifetime of doing that which you have always done. Think of the man who plants corn year after year until he's too old and tired to get up. So he lies around like an old dog. His thoughts and feelings, the best of him, ramble aimlessly to the only things he has ever done, to plant corn. For me, that is the most frightening waste there is. We are men, and our lot is to learn and to be hurled into inconceivable new worlds. Are there any new worlds for us really, I asked half in jest. We have exhausted nothing, you fool, he said imperatively. Seeing is for impeccable men. Temper your spirit now, become a warrior, learn to see, and then you'll know that there is no end to the new worlds for our vision. Don Juan did not make me leave after I had run his errands as he had been doing lately. He said I could stay, and the next day, June 28, 1969, just before noon, he told me I was going to smoke again. Am I going to try to see the Guardian again? No, that's out. This is something else. He took me to the mouth of a canyon at the bottom of the hills. It was about an hour's walk. We rested for a short while, and then he guided me through the thick desert underbrush to a waterhole. That is, to a spot he said was a waterhole. It was as dry as any other spot in the surrounding area. Sit in the middle of the waterhole, he ordered me. I obeyed and sat down. Are you going to sit here too, I asked. 
I saw him fixing a place to sit some twenty yards from the center of the waterhole against the rocks on the side of the mountain. He said he was going to watch me from there. I was sitting with my knees against my chest. He corrected my position and told me to sit with my left leg tucked under my seat and my right one bent, with the knee in an upward position. My right arm had to be by my side with my fist resting on the ground, while my left arm was crossed over my chest. He told me to face him and stay there, relaxed but not abandoned. He then took a sort of whitish cord from his pouch. It looked like a big loop. He looped it around his neck and stretched it with his left hand until it was taut. He plucked the tight string with his right hand. It made a dull, vibratory sound. He relaxed his grip and looked at me and told me that I had to yell a specific word if I began to feel that something was coming at me when he plucked the string. I asked what was supposed to come at me and he told me to shut up. He signaled me with his hand that he was going to commence. I had a moment of genuine apprehension. I wanted to inquire about the reason for our being there, but he did not give me time and began plucking the string. He did it various times at regular intervals of perhaps twenty seconds. I noticed that as he kept plucking the string he augmented the tension. I could clearly see that his arms and neck were shivering under the stress. The sound became more clear and I realized then that he added a peculiar yell every time he plucked the string. The combined sound of the tense string and the human voice produced a weird, unearthly reverberation. Don Juan relaxed his grip and looked at me. While he played, his back was turned to me and he was facing the southeast as I was. When he relaxed, he faced me. Don't look at me when I play, he said. Don't close your eyes, though, not for anything. Look at the ground in front of you and listen. He tensed the string again and began playing. I looked at the ground and concentrated on the sound he was making. I had never heard the sound before in my life. I became very frightened. The eerie reverberation filled the narrow canyon and began to echo. In fact, the sound Don Juan was making was coming back to me as an echo from all around the canyon walls. Don Juan must have also noticed that and increased the tension on his string. Although Don Juan had changed the pitch, the echo seemed to subside, and then it seemed to concentrate on one point toward the southeast. Don Juan reduced the tension of the string by degrees until I heard a final dull twang. He put the string inside his pouch and walked toward me. He helped me stand up. I noticed then that the muscles of my arms and legs were stiff like rocks. I was literally soaked in perspiration. I had no idea I had been perspiring so heavily. Drops of sweat ran into my eyes and made them burn. Don Juan practically dragged me out of the place. I tried to say something, but he put his hand over my mouth. Instead of leaving the canyon the way we had come in, Don Juan made a detour. We climbed the side of the mountain and ended up in some hills very far from the mouth of the canyon. We walked in dead silence to his house. It was already dark by the time we got there. I have the proper thing for you to do, Don Juan said to me as soon as I woke up the next morning. You will start it today. There isn't much time, you know. What was the string you played, Don Juan? A spirit catcher. Mine is a wild boar. When you get one, you will realize that it is alive and can teach you the different sounds it likes. With practice, you will get to know your spirit catcher so well that together you will make sounds full of power. Why did you take me to look for the spirit of the waterhole, Don Juan? You'll know that very soon. Around ten o'clock the next morning, Don Juan took his pipe out of its sheath, filled it with smoking mixture, then handed it to me and told me to carry it to the bank of the stream. Don Juan made me smoke twice the amount I had smoked during previous attempts. At a given moment, he leaned over and whispered in my right ear that he was going to teach me how to use the water in order to move. I tried to focus my gaze on the water, but its movement distracted me. My mind and my eyes began to wander onto other features of the immediate surroundings. 
Don Juan bobbed my head up and down and ordered me again to gaze only at the water and not to think at all. He said it was difficult to stare at the moving water and that one had to keep on trying. I tried three times, and every time I became distracted by something else. Don Juan very patiently shook my head every time. Finally, I noticed that my mind and my eyes were focusing on the water. In spite of its movement, I was becoming immersed in my view of its liquidness. The water became slightly different. It seemed to be heavier and uniformly grayish-green. I could notice the ripples it made as it moved. The ripples were extremely sharp. And then suddenly I had the sensation that I was not looking at a mass of moving water, but at a picture of water. What I had in front of my eyes was a frozen segment of the running water. The ripples were immobile. I could look at every one of them. Then they began to acquire a green phosphorescence, and a sort of green fog oozed out of them. The fog expanded in ripples, and as it moved, its greenness became more brilliant until it was a dazzling radiance that covered everything. Look at the water in front of you, I heard him saying, but don't let its sound carry you anywhere. If you let the sound of the water carry you, I may never be able to find you and bring you back. Now get into that green fog and listen to my voice. I heard and understood him with extraordinary clarity. I began looking at the water fixedly and had a very peculiar sensation of physical pleasure, an itch, an undefined happiness. For an instant I saw the fizzling as a slow expansion of green matter. It was a silent explosion. The water burst into a brilliant green mist which expanded until it had enveloped me. I remained suspended in it until a very sharp, sustained, shrill noise shook everything. The fog seemed to congeal into the usual features of the water's surface. The shrill noise was Don Juan yelling, Hey! Close to my ear. He told me to pay attention to his voice and go back into the fog and wait there until he called me. I said, Okay, in English, and heard the cackling noise of his laughter. Please don't talk, he said. Don't give me any more okays. I could hear him very well. The sound of his voice was melodious and above all friendly. I knew that without thinking. It was a conviction that struck me and then passed. Don Juan's voice ordered me to focus all my attention on the fog, but not abandon myself to it. He said repeatedly that a warrior did not abandon himself to anything, not even to his death. I became immersed in the mist again and noticed that it was not fog at all, or at least it was not what I conceived fog to be like. The fog-like phenomenon was composed of tiny bubbles, round objects that came into my field of vision and moved out of it with a floating quality. I watched their movement for a while, then a loud, distant noise jolted my attention and I lost my capacity to focus and could no longer perceive the tiny bubbles. All I was aware of then was a green, amorphous, fog-like glow. I heard the loud noise again, and the jolt it gave dispelled the fog at once, and I found myself looking at the water of the irrigation ditch. Then I heard it again, much closer. It was Don Juan's voice. He was telling me to pay attention to him, because his voice was my only guide. He ordered me to look at the bank of the stream and at the vegetation directly in front of me. After a few moments, Don Juan ordered me to return to the fog and asked me again to pay attention to his voice, because he was going to guide me so I could learn how to move. He said that once I saw the bubbles, I should board one of them and let it carry me. I obeyed him and was at once surrounded by the green mist, and then I saw the tiny bubbles. Don Juan's voice kept on urging me to follow one of them and mount it. I wondered how I was supposed to do that, and automatically I voiced the word, How. I felt that the word was very deep inside me, and as it came out it carried me to the surface. The word was like a buoy that emerged out of my depth. I heard myself saying, How, and I sounded like a dog howling. Don Juan howled back, also like a dog, and then he made some coyote sounds and laughed. 
I thought it was very funny, and I actually laughed. Don Juan told me very calmly to let myself become affixed to a bubble by following it. Go back again, he said. Go into the fog. Into the fog. I went back and noticed that the movement of the bubbles had slowed down, and they had become as large as basketballs. I viewed them as if I were looking through a window. That is, the frame of the window did not allow me to follow them, but only permitted me to view them coming into and going out of my field of perception. When I ceased to view them as bubbles, however, I was capable of following them. In the act of following them, I became affixed to one of them, and I floated with it. I truly felt I was moving. In fact, I was the bubble, or that thing which resembled a bubble. Then I heard the shrill sound of Don Juan's voice. It jolted me, and I lost my feeling of being it. The sound was extremely frightening. It was a remote voice, very metallic, as if he were talking through a loudspeaker. I made out some of the words. Look at the banks, he said. I saw a very large body of water. The water was rushing. I could hear the noise it made. Look at the banks. Don Juan ordered me again. I saw a concrete wall. The sound of the water became terribly loud. The sound engulfed me. Then it ceased instantaneously, as if it had been cut off. I had the sensation of blackness, of sleep. I became aware that I was immersed in the irrigation ditch. Don Juan was splashing water in my face as he hummed. Then he submerged me in the ditch. He pulled my head up over the surface and let me rest it on the bank as he held me by the back of my shirt collar. Don Juan told me to come out. I noticed an urgency in his voice. I'm green, I said. Cut it out, he said imperatively. You have no time. Get out of there. The water is about to trap you. Get out of it. Out. Out. I panicked and jumped out. This time you must tell me everything that took place, he said matter-of-factly, as soon as we sat facing each other inside his room. He was not interested in the sequence of my experience. He wanted to know only what I had encountered when he told me to look at the bank. He was interested in details. I described the wall I had seen. You moved very fast, he said. As fast as a man who knows how to perform this technique, I had a hard time keeping up with you. You mean, Don Juan, that I really traveled in the water? You did very far, too. How far? You wouldn't believe it. I tried to coax him into telling me, but he dropped the subject and said he had to leave for a while. Don Juan returned the next day late in the afternoon. In the meantime, I had written down everything I could recollect about my perceptions. When Don Juan arrived at his house in the late afternoon, I accosted him and insisted on reading my account to him. He refused to listen and made me sit down. He sat facing me. He was not smiling. He seemed to be thinking, judging by the penetrating look in his eyes, which were fixed above the horizon. I think you must be aware by now, he said in a tone that was suddenly very severe, that everything is mortally dangerous. The water is as deadly as the Guardian. If you don't watch out, the water will trap you. It nearly did that yesterday. But in order to be trapped, a man has to be willing. There's your trouble. You're willing to abandon yourself. I did not know what he was talking about. His attack on me had been so sudden that I was disoriented. I raised the point that it was humanly impossible to be controlled at all times. He maintained that for a warrior there was nothing out of control. I brought up the idea of accidents and said that what happened to me at the water canal could certainly be classed as an accident, since I neither meant it nor was I aware of my improper behavior. I talked about different people who had misfortunes that could be explained as accidents. All I can say to you, Don Juan said is that a warrior is never available. Never is he standing on the road waiting to be clobbered. Thus he cuts to a minimum his chances of the unforeseen. 
What you call accidents are most of the time very easy to avoid, except for fools who are living helter-skelter. It is not possible to live strategically all the time, I said. Imagine that someone is waiting for you with a powerful rifle with a telescopic sight. He could spot you accurately 500 yards away. What would you do? Don Juan looked at me with an air of disbelief and then broke into laughter. What would you do, I urged him. If someone is waiting for me with a rifle with a telescopic sight, he said, obviously mocking me. If someone is hiding out of sight waiting for you, you won't have a chance. You can't stop a bullet. No, I can't, but I still don't understand your point. My point is that all your strategy cannot be of any help in a situation like that. Oh, but it can. If someone is waiting for me with a powerful rifle with a telescopic sight, I simply will not come around. My next attempt at seeing took place on September 3, 1969. Don Juan made me smoke two bowls of the mixture. I remember that when my body was thoroughly numb, Don Juan held me by my right armpit and made me walk into the thick desert chaparral that grows for miles around his house. I cannot recollect what I or Don Juan did after we entered the brush, nor can I recall how long we walked. At a certain moment, I found I was sitting on top of a small hill. Then, very faintly, I heard Don Juan's voice talking to me. Now you must look at me, he said as he turned my head to face him. He repeated the statement three or four times. I looked and detected right away the same glowing effect I had perceived twice before while looking at his face. It was a mesmerizing movement, an undulatory shift of light within contained areas. There were no definite boundaries to those areas, and yet the waving light never spilled over but moved within invisible limits. I scanned the glowing object in front of me and immediately it started to lose its glow and the familiar features of Don Juan's face emerged, or rather became superimposed on the fading glow. I must have then focused my gaze again. Don Juan's features faded and the glow intensified. I had placed my attention on an area which must have been his left eye. I noticed that there the movement of the glow was not contained. I detected something perhaps resembling explosions of sparks. The explosions were rhythmical and actually sent out something like particles of light that flew out with apparent force toward me and then retreated as if they were rubber fibers. Don Juan must have turned my head around. Suddenly I found myself looking at a plowed field. Now look ahead, I heard Don Juan saying. In front of me, perhaps two hundred yards away, was a large, long hill. Don Juan spoke to me again. It took me a moment to understand what he was saying. Do you see a man in that field? He kept on asking. Don Juan took my head in his hands from behind. I could see his fingers over my eyebrows and on my cheeks and made me pan over the field, moving my head slowly from right to left and then in the opposite direction. Watch every detail. Your life may depend on it, I heard him saying over and over. He made me pan four times over the 180-degree visual horizon in front of me. At one moment, when he had moved my head to face the extreme left, I thought I detected something moving in the field. I had a brief perception of movement with the corner of my right eye. He began to shift my head back to my right, and I was capable of focusing my gaze on the plowed field. I saw a man walking alongside the furrows, Don Juan must have noticed that I had seen the man. He asked me repeatedly if the man was looking at me or if he was coming toward me. I wanted to tell him that the man was walking away and that his back was turned to me, but I could only say no. Don Juan said that if the man turned and came to me, I should yell and he would turn my head away in order to protect me. I had no sense of fear or apprehension or involvement. I coldly watched the scene. The man stopped walking at the middle of the field. He stood with his right foot on a ledge of a large round boulder as if he were tying his sandal. Then he straightened up, 
pulled a string from his bag and wrapped it around his left hand. He turned his back to me and, facing the top of the hill, began scanning the area in front of him. I thought he was scanning because of the way he moved his head, which he kept turning slowly to his right. I saw him in profile, and then he began to turn his whole body toward me until he was looking at me. He actually jerked his head or moved it in such a way that I knew beyond a doubt that he had seen me. He extended his left arm in front of him, pointing to the ground, and holding his arm in that position, he began to walk toward me. He's coming, I yelled, without any difficulty. Don Juan must have turned my head around, for next I was looking at the chaparral. I saw Don Juan moving to a spot perhaps twenty yards away. He walked with such incredible speed and agility that I could hardly believe it was Don Juan. He turned around and faced me and ordered me to gaze at him. His face was glowing. It looked like a blotch of light. He said something to me. I struggled to understand and lost my view of the glow. And then I saw Don Juan as I see him in everyday life. He was a couple of feet away from me. He sat down facing me. I perceived once more the effect of pulsating explosions of light emanating from an area which must have been his left eye. I noticed that perceiving was more than sighting. It was feeling. The pool of dark liquid light had an extraordinary depth. It was friendly, kind. The glow had a very lovely and delicate way of touching me, of soothing me, which gave me a sensation of exquisiteness. Don Juan must have turned me around once more, for I was again looking at the plowed field. I heard him telling me to watch the man. The man was standing by the boulder looking at me. I could not distinguish his features. His hat covered most of his face. After a moment, he tucked his bag under his right arm and began to walk away toward my right. He walked almost to the end of the plowed area, changing direction and took a few steps toward the gully. Then I lost control of my focusing and he vanished, and so did the total scenery. The image of the desert shrubs became superimposed on it. I do not recollect how I returned to Don Juan's house, nor do I remember what he did to bring me back. When I woke up, I was lying on my straw mat in Don Juan's room. I looked at my watch. It was 11 p.m. I went back to sleep, and by one o'clock the next afternoon, I thought I was myself again. I wandered to the back and found Don Juan sitting by the irrigation ditch. When he saw me approaching, he made frantic gestures to make me stop and go back into the house. Run inside, he yelled. I ran into the house, and he joined me a while later. Don't ever come after me, he said. If you want to see me, wait for me here. I apologized. He told me not to waste myself in silly apologies which did not have the power to cancel my acts. He said that he had had a very difficult time bringing me back and that he had been interceding for me at the water. We have to take a chance now and wash you in the water, he said. I assured him I felt fine. He gazed into my eyes for a long time. Come with me, he said. I'm going to put you in the water. I'm fine, I said. Look, I'm taking notes. He pulled me up from my mat with considerable force. Don't indulge, he said. In no time at all you will fall asleep again. Maybe I won't be able to wake you up this time. We ran to the back of his house. Before we reached the water, he told me in a most dramatic tone to shut my eyes tight and not to open them until he said to. He told me that if I gazed at the water, even for an instant, I might die. I kept my eyes shut as he went on submerging and pulling me out of the water for hours. The change I experienced was remarkable. Whatever was wrong with me before I entered the water was so subtle that I did not really notice it until I compared it with the feeling of well-being and alertness I had while Don Juan kept me in the irrigation canal. Water got into my nose and I began to sneeze. Don Juan pulled me out and led me with my eyes still closed into the house. He made me change my clothes and then guided me into his room, had me sit down on my mat, arrange the direction of my body, and then told me to open my eyes. 
I opened them, and what I saw caused me to jump back and grab onto his leg. I experienced a tremendously confusing moment. Don Juan wrapped me with his knuckles on the very top of my head. It was a quick blow which was not hard or painful, but somehow shocking. What is the matter with you? What did you see? he asked. Upon opening my eyes, I had seen the same scene I had watched before. I had seen the same man. This time, however, he was almost touching me. I saw his face. There was an air of familiarity about it. I almost knew who he was. The scene vanished when Don Juan hit me on the head. I looked up at Don Juan. He had his hand ready to hit me again. He laughed and asked if I would like to get another blow. I let go of his leg and relaxed on my mat. He ordered me to look straight ahead and not to turn around for any reason in the direction of the water at the back of his house. I then noticed for the first time that it was pitch black in the room. For a moment I was not sure whether I had my eyes open. I touched them with my hands to make sure. I called Don Juan loudly and told him something was wrong with my eyes. I could not see at all, while a moment before I had seen him ready to hit me. I heard his laughter over my head to my right, and then he lit his kerosene lantern. My eyes adapted to the light in a matter of seconds. Everything was as it always had been. This was the first time I did not believe in the final reality of my perception. I had been edging toward that feeling, and I had perhaps intellectualized it at various times, but never had I been at the brink of a serious doubt. This time, however, I did not believe the room was real. I complained that I did not feel well and told him what I had seen. He laughed at me, saying that to succumb to fright was a miserable indulgence. You're frightened without being afraid, he said. You saw the ally staring at you. Big deal. Wait until you've seen him face to face before you shit in your pants. He was interested in the scene of the plowed field and in every detail I could remember about the man. That ally was beckoning you, he said. I made you move your head when he came to you, not because he was endangering you, but because it is better to wait. You're not in a hurry. A warrior is never idle and never in a hurry. What was the meaning of the acts he performed? By looking at you, he meant he welcomes you. He showed you that you need a spirit catcher and a pouch, but not from this area. His bag was from another part of the country. The rest of the scene was meant to help you locate the exact place to find him. I know now where the place is. I'll take you there very soon. Don Juan dissuaded me from going back to Los Angeles the next morning. Apparently, he thought I still had not totally recovered. He insisted that I sit inside his room facing the southeast in order to preserve my strength. He sat to my left, handed me my notebook, and said that this time I had him pinned down. He not only had to stay with me, he also had to talk to me. I really did not want to talk at all. I'd begun to feel anxious and restless. Don Juan apparently found the situation utterly ludicrous. He laughed till the tears came. Don't tell me that at a time when you should talk, you're not going to find anything to say, he said, his eyes shining with a mischievous glint. You want to know what your death may be like, he asked me with a childlike delight in his face. I found his mischievous pleasure in teasing me rather comforting. It almost took the edge off my apprehension. Okay, tell me, I said, and my voice cracked. He had a formidable explosion of laughter. He held his stomach and rolled on his side and mockingly repeated, Okay, tell me, with a crack in his voice. You drive a great deal, he went on, saying. So you may find yourself at a given moment behind the wheel again. It will be a very fast sensation that won't give you time to think. Suddenly, let's say, you would find yourself driving as you have done thousands of times. 
But before you could wonder about yourself, you would notice a strange formation in front of your windshield. If you look closer, you'd realize that it is a cloud that looks like a shiny whorl. It would resemble, let's say, a face right in the middle of the sky in front of you. As you watched it, you would see it moving backward until it was only a brilliant point in the distance. And then you would notice it began moving toward you again. It would pick up speed, and in a blink of an eye, it would smash against the windshield of your car. You're strong. I'm sure it would take death a couple of whams to get you. By then, you would know where you were and what was happening to you. The face would recede again to a position on the horizon, would pick up speed and smash against you. The face would enter inside you, and then you'd know. It was the Allies' face all the time, or it was me talking, or you writing. Death was nothing all the time, nothing. It was a little dot lost in the sheets of your notebook, and yet it would enter inside you with an uncontrollable force and would make you expand. It would make you flat and extend you over the sky and the earth and beyond, and you would be like a fog of tiny crystals moving, moving away. I was very taken by his description of my death. I had expected to hear something so different. I could not say anything for a long time. Death enters through the belly, he continued right through the gap of the will. That area is the most important and sensitive part of a man. It is the area of the will and also the area through which all of us die. I know it because my ally has guided me to that stage. A sorcerer tunes his will by letting his death overtake him. And when he is flat and begins to expand, his impeccable will takes over and assembles the fog into one person again. Don Juan made a strange gesture. He opened his hands like two fans, lifted them to the level of his elbows, turned them until his thumbs were touching his sides, and then brought them slowly together at the center of his body, over his navel. He kept them there for a moment. His arms shivered with the strain. Then he brought them up until the tips of his middle fingers touched his forehead, and then pulled them down in the same position to the center of his body. It was a formidable gesture. Don Juan had performed it with such force and beauty that I was spellbound. And this concludes Part 2 of A Separate Reality by Dr. Carlos Castaneda. The conclusion and Part 3 will air in my show next week. Until then, this is Marcus Leder, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.